Good morning. You know fall has arrived because I'm wearing my vest. <laughs> Sorry. Well, good morning uh, also to our viewers online. Uh, I, too, want to reiterate, um, last week we handed these out, these grow guides out when you came in. If you weren't here last week or you didn't pick one up, I encourage you to pick one up before you leave today. Next week, our fall semester begins. So if you've not signed up for a small group or a class, now's a good time to do that. All right. So we're wrapping up our series on the Psalms today. Uh, Next week, we'll begin a nine-week series on the book of Ruth. When I was growing up, my grandmother made it a point to take my sister and I to church, her church. Um, Her church was a traditional Presbyterian church. So this this traditional Presbyterian church that my grandmother took my sister and I to um, had hymns, choirs, organs. Um, We also had pastors with a lot of education. Um, They went to places like Columbia Theological Seminary, Union Theological Seminary, even Princeton Theological Seminary. Needless to say, uh, I grew up with some very deep teaching. Um, However, while Presbyterians are known for being scholarly and learned, they're not typically known for being very emotional or demonstrative. Um, In fact, the joke is that Presbyterians are often referred to as God's chosen frozen. Uh, It wasn't until I encountered my first charismatic church, um, like this one, that I realized that God wants more than just my mind. Um, He wants my heart, and he wants everything else. So Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan pastor and theologian in the 1700s. Um, Some scholars have said that he's He's one of the greatest intellectuals that the U.S. has ever produced. Edward studied at Yale, and he had a deep influence on theology, on the thought life, on the culture of his time, Um, and that influence extends all the way till today. He definitely helped shape the spiritual life of America in the 1700s. When historians try to find someone who represents that that Puritan intellectual aspect of American society, they almost always point to Jonathan Edwards. So Jonathan Edwards has written uh, some of the deepest, most challenging theological studies ever written. No one would argue that he wasn't an intellectual. But the interesting thing is that He didn't just know God intellectually, he also experienced God. So much so that he couldn't help but be emotional. Here's what Edwards once wrote in his journal. Once in divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary, of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man, and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love, and meek and gentle condescension. 
The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent. I had to look that word up. It means like you can't even come up with words to describe it. With an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as, can, as I can judge about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. So not just learning about God, but actually pursuing his presence and being transformed by it. So our psalm today, Psalm 84, is all about pursuing God's presence. Another thing about Psalm 84 is this. Whereas many of the previous psalms that we've covered in this series have been psalms in one way or another, like crying out in the midst of the sorrows of this earth, this psalm is crying out in the midst of the sounds of heaven. And I think it's a good psalm to end our series on. So in this psalm, we see a lover of God desiring his presence. He yearns to be worshiping at the temple so that he can be in God's presence. Verse 2 says this, My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. He wants to be there so badly that he's even jealous of the birds who nest in the temple rafters. Verse 3 says, Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. It's interesting. The psalmist wants so badly to be in the presence of the Lord it causes him to declare in verses 4, 5, and 12 three beatitudes, blessings. Like, what does it mean to truly be blessed? Here's what those verses say. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. And then verse 12, Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So I want us to talk a little bit about what it means to be blessed. As Christians, we pray for God to bless our families. Um, when we receive things that we weren't expecting, we refer to them as God's blessings. We talk about our ministries being blessed. Uh, we say we're having a blessed day when things are going generally the way we want them to. But what does it mean truly to be blessed? For followers of Jesus, is the blessed life the same as having a successful life? 
Like, is it like the, the Christian version of the good life? Like having a healthy marriage or beautiful children who grow up to be successful? Or is it having a successful career, like continuing to move up the ladder to positions that lead you to more pay, more respect? Is it financial abundance? Is it not getting sick or having any serious health issues? If someone had all of these things, would they truly be blessed? Have you seen people with, if not all of those things, then like most of those things? Did they end up being like the most Christ-like people you've ever met in your life? Like super humble, loving, like absolute dependence on God? That's not been my observation. Some of the people I've known who were the most humble, the most loving, the most dependent on God, the most Christ-like people I've known have been people who've had very few of those blessings. Here's what I've observed. Our desire for God is fueled by our need for God. Our need for God to meet a need which we can't meet ourselves. It's in the areas of our pain and our loss where we feel our needs most intensely. Unanswered prayers force us to our knees. Unmet needs deepen our prayer lives as we cry out to God for help. The ESV translation of the New Testament um, has 112 references with the words bless, blessings, or blessed. None of them refer to material prosperity. Here are just a few examples. They'll show up on the screen. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed is the man who may remain steadfast under trial. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's not even a hint of any material prosperity in any New Testament reference. On the contrary, blessing is usually associated with poverty or trials or just being joined by faith with Jesus. So the Greek word here is makarios, makarios, which means happy or satisfied. Which is crazy, if you go back to those verses that I just read and you replace the word blessed with happy or satisfied. So what is blessing then? Blessing is anything 
God gives that makes us more fully satisfied in him. Anything that draws us closer to Jesus, anything that helps us let go of what is temporal and cling to that which is eternal. Often it's the pain and the struggles and the trials and the disappointments and the unfulfilled longings that enable us to do that. Earthly blessings are temporary. They can all be taken away in a moment. Job's blessings all disappeared pretty quickly. How many of us have experienced loss? A lost job, a failed marriage, a kid who left the faith. Your health is in a downward spiral. Your dreams are shattered. And yet in the midst of such loss, we can experience God's blessings. We can experience his presence his provision. Our faith can grow and so can our love, both for God and for others. I want to share a song with you by Laura Story. It's called Blessings. Some of the lyrics of this song uh, are this. What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? Let's listen to it. Promise from your word is not enough. 
Thank you, Molly and Aaron. I had this bright idea on Wednesday. Oh, we could do this special song, and those guys learned it in just a few days. So thank you guys so much. So even when we we're in the midst of loss and despair, um, when we turn to God and we praise him, when we, when we, we find our strength and our trust in him, we find that we are blessed. Um, Psalm 84 lets us know, lets us know this. The good life is not about having everything we want. It's about having God, even in the midst of us having nothing else. So this is why someone who's, you've seen this, why someone who's got fame, they've got fortune, um, they can at the same time be depressed, even suicidal. I'm sure you can think of people like that. While someone who's barely scraping by, the working poor, um, can have the joy of the Lord all around them. It's interesting. Study after study has shown that the working poor are the most generous givers in this country. I've always found that fascinating. I'm, I saw it myself growing up. I've told you guys several times. 
um, that I grew up very poor. And I saw this, people who had almost nothing helping out people who had even less. The good life is not about having everything we want. It's about having God, even if it's in the midst of having nothing else. So in verse 5 again, the psalmist says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Now the implication is that this pilgrimage is to Jerusalem. And that's a double meaning. Uh, Not just Jerusalem, the city, but the new Jerusalem, right, which is heaven. So just like the Bible's definition of what it means to be blessed is different from the world's, um, here we see, too, the Bible redefining what it means to set our own course, to set our own agenda. The world around us tells, that, tells us that we should like, set the course of our lives by looking inside of ourselves, by examining our hearts. Look, what are we passionate about? What do we enjoy most? Psalm 84 says something different. Blessedness is not discovering myself. It's not expressing my inner self or even being true to myself. It's discovering God and following God. It's setting out on a pilgrimage, on a highway that leads us out of the city of introspection and focus on self in pursuit of God and his presence and his truth and walking out his calling on our life, whatever that might be. When we pursue his agenda over ours, then we are blessed. Listen to verses five through seven again. It says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. So let me unpack that for you. So that valley of Baca means valley of tears or valley of weeping. Have you ever been going through something difficult or were about to go through something difficult and you're worried that you wouldn't have the strength to face it. So the famous author and theologian C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this to a woman who was struggling with worry. He said, remember, one is given strength to bear what happens, not the 101 different things that might happen. So about a decade before Lewis, Uh, wrote that letter, there was a Dutch Christian named Corrie ten Boom. Um, She was imprisoned in a Nazi concentration camp. She wrote in her autobiography many years later um, about the anxiety she had when she was only six years old. She worried, like even at six, that someday her parents would die. And so Corrie's father sat her down on the edge of the bed and said this to her. Corey, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? 
Why, just before we get on the train, she replied. Exactly, her father said. And our wise father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. God's timing is always perfect, even when we think it's not. I thought I would retire from my last church in Kansas City. Like I used to envision like some of the elder people in the church like, oh, someday like I'm going to do their funeral. I would envision like my retirement party and um, like what what stories are they going to tell about me, you know, this kind of thing. But God had other plans, right? Were they better than mine? Absolutely. Here's another example. Right now, as I stand before you today, I am 50 years old. Do I have 20, 30, 40 more years of life? I don't know. Maybe I have 10, five, one. Can I trust, though, that when he calls me home, that his timing is better than mine? Yes. Can I trust that he'll give me the strength to face my time when it does come? Yes. So let's read verses 5 through 7 again, but with an understanding of what I just explained. And you'll see in the scripture that shows up there, Um, The words that I added are in bold there. So, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage to heaven. As they pass through the valley of Baca, tears, weeping, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion, which is the new Jerusalem, the city of God, i.e. heaven. So whatever you're going through right now, whatever valley of tears you might be going through, God wants you to turn to him, to seek his presence, and to deepen your experience of him. And as we pass through the valley of tears, if we keep our eyes fixed on him, there is a potential to create pools of blessings for others. H.C. Leopold says this in his commentary on Psalms. As the persons in question pass through it, they bestow by the life they live and by the works they do so much blessing upon others that they may be said to make the parched valley a place of springs. So in other words, our dependence on God and our appetite for God and his presence, even in the valley of tears, he can use that to stir the appetites of others. I want to talk a bit about the temple. We see throughout this psalm um, a passionate love for the dwelling place of God. How lovely is your dwelling place. 
Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Right? So if this psalm, we don't know for sure, but if this psalm was written during David's reign, uh, the temple wouldn't have been built yet. So it would have been the tabernacle that he was talking about. The mention of courts could uh, apply to either the tabernacle or the, t- or the temple. Regardless, the temple of God now looks very different than it did for the psalmist who wrote the psalm. Um, a thousand years after Psalm 84 was written, a man showed up in Jerusalem and he said this, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The man I'm referring to, of course, is Jesus. And the Jewish leaders scoffed at him. This is what they said. They said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days. But of course, he was referring to his body, soon to be destroyed by crucifixion, but then resurrected to new life. Jesus became the earthly temple of God. Colossians 2.9 says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. The complete image of the invisible God is revealed in Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Yet Christ is only the initial installment of God's indwelling presence. Today, the church, the body of believers who gather in the name of Jesus Christ, we make up the temple of God's Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Jesus said this in John 14.23. He said, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. Paul said this in Ephesians 2, verses 20 through 22. He said, Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So the church of Jesus Christ is a spiritual temple made with living stones. 1 Peter 2.5 says this, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. So not only is the church the dwelling place of God's presence, both the whole church of Jesus Christ and this local church, but each of us is the dwelling place of God's presence. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? 
2 Corinthians 6.16 says, And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So the temple of God is no longer this towering structure in Israel. His temple is the person of Jesus And by extension, his gathered church, the place where his glory resides. And we each, as followers of Jesus, are temples of God's spirit and his presence. So the last thing Psalm 84 says is this. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So this might seem like a different thought from all this longing for God's presence. Um, Longing to be with him in the temple. But it's actually the key to the whole thing. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. How can we enter into his presence and be transformed if we don't first put our faith and our trust in him? So the famous 19th century Baptist pastor, Charles Spurgeon, um, said this. The worship is that of faith, and the blessedness is peculiar to believers. No formal worshiper can enter into this secret. A man must know the Lord by the life of real faith, or he can have no true rejoicing In the Lord's worship, his house, his son, or his ways. Dear reader, how fares it with your soul? It starts by trusting in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Um, If we want God's transforming presence, if we want the peace and the security and the blessedness that comes from that, then we secure all of this through faith in Jesus Christ. Through his redemptive work on the cross, um, we can be forgiven of our sins, those very sins that are keeping us from experiencing God's presence and God's peace. When we repent and we believe the gospel, whether it is our first time committing our life to the Lord or it is the thousandth time that we are repenting and recommitting our life to Christ. And it's, it's like those birds in the temple of God. We finally find that we're at home and we're at peace and we're blessed. Blessed to experience the transforming, life-giving presence of the Father. My question to you today is the same as Charles Spurgeon's was to his congregation back in the late 1800s, which is this. How fares it with your soul? Are you home? Are you at peace? Are you blessed to be experiencing the presence of the Father? And if not, will you come home?
Let's pray. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. Our souls yearn, even faint, for the courts of the Lord. Our hearts and our flesh cry out for the living God. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. We thank you, Father, that you made a way for us to experience your presence, to have your peace, and to come home to you. And that's through your son's death and resurrection on the cross. Your word says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So I say this to anyone hearing my voice. How fares it with your soul? Whether you've never committed your life to Jesus or it is your thousandth time recommitting your life to him, you can experience his presence and his peace. You can become a new creation and be blessed to be the dwelling place of the Almighty yourself and be a part of his dwelling place as Christ's church gathers to glorify him. If that is you, I would encourage you to pray silently along with me this prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for making me and loving me. Even when I've ignored you and I've gone my own way, I need you. I'm sorry for my sins and I ask you to forgive me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. I believe that you are the resurrected Son of God. Lord, I want to follow you from this day on. Please come into my life and make me a new person. Restore me, heal me, and transform me into who you created me to be. I accept your gift of salvation. May I be the dwelling place of your Holy Spirit. Fill me, Holy Spirit. Help me grow in Christ. Help me fulfill the calling you've put on my life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.